the other week I was at this function and uh, we're dropping our kids off and parents were kind of standing around the out, outside uh, watching. I got talking with this guy and um, we're kind of getting to know each other, meeting each other. And he asked me what I did. I told him, you know, I've got a church downtown Kitchener. And, and he was like, oh, that's really interesting. And, uh, and uh, so he went on to explain. He said, you know, Jesus is a good dude. You know, that Jesus guy, he's a good dude. Um, he's like, I like, a lot, I like a lot of the stuff that he said. And so he went on to share that... Um, one of his view of spirituality was to take the best, what he considered to be the best of all religions, and just basically love his neighbor and be a nice guy. Right? This was kind of his idea. And uh, so we had a really good discussion around um, this Jesus dude um, and whether or not he was just a dude, actually. And so I, what, one of the things I said to him, I said, you know, uh, one of the things that caused me to really have a conviction about um, becoming a uh, a preacher and, and really believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus uh, was more than just a, a really great dude, but that he was actually the son of God. Um, and I went on to discuss it. I said, you know, one of the things that really struck me when I struggled with doubts, you know, how do you know which religion is true? And you're telling me you're picking the best kind of of all of them. So how do you determine what that is? I said, one of the things that helped me was I kind of looked back on human history and when I was having doubts and I, real, and, and I realized that... Uh, what sociologists find is people don't change their minds very quickly. If there's one thing you learn from the field of sociology, it's that people groups and cultures and, and paradigms take a very long time to change. Right? We have paradigms today um, that we wish would change. Paradigms like everybody, regardless of the color of their skin, are equal and ha should have equal dignity and tr be treated with equal dignity, right? That's a paradigm that we wish was universally accepted. But if you grew up in a culture where that's just not the case or an environment where that's not the case and there's a systemic racism, which we still struggle with uh, in this city, in this country, in the world, um, you, you don't just flip overnight. And that's one of the things that the field of sociology teaches us is it takes a long time and a lot of reasoning and arguing and battling and, and, and wrestling before views shift. But with Christianity, what you find <clears throat> is that overnight, thousands and thousands of Jews and Greeks and Romans and Persians changed their views overnight. And they started worshiping this dude that you call Jesus Christ. How did that happen? If you've been raised for millennia in a particular line of thought, philosophy, if you're a little Jewish kid and for generations and generations and generations you've been taught that God could never be a man, how is it that overnight you worship this man-God Jesus? If you're a Greek or a Roman, and you're, for millennia you've been uh, steeped in the philosophies and the traditions of your culture. How is it, how is it that... There was this explosion in the first century of Christianity that went across cultures. And so we kind of had a good discussion about that. When you're going to understand who Jesus is, what he taught, what he came to do, you have to go to the Gospels. For those of you who are new to the Bible or exploring Christian faith this morning, the Gospels are four books written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Call those the Gospels. And they are the historical documents that record Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So for the next 16 weeks, we're going to unpack one of them. The Gospel according to Mark. Our text for this morning is Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Now, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the criticisms of, of the Gospels is they say, well, they, these books can't be reliable 
Now, you know, they're exaggerated stories put together as a way of raging against totalitarianism in Rome. They, you know, they wrote them to kind of undermine the system, stick it to the man. And uh, so this Jesus character, he was really nothing more than an ancient hippie who was a nice guy who loved people, who taught the love, love your neighbor stuff. But all of the claims to his divinity and his life, his, uh, his resurrection, those things are exaggerated, greatly exaggerated over time. That's the criticism of what I'm about to read to you. Uh, but here's the problem with that, just to give you some context. Okay? This Gospel of Mark, um, if it was written uh, with the intent of being an exaggerated fabrication of the story of Jesus, with the goal of starting a revolution against Rome, um, it w- this, this book would have not started a movement. This book would have gotten no movement because of the way that it's written. For example, Mark, the author, he was a translator and scribe for Peter. And all through Mark's gospel, Peter, one of the most influential leaders who founded the, the church, is, is portrayed over and over as an enormous failure through this book. So, for example, the only credible source that Mark had of Peter's denial of Jesus was Peter himself. That's the only reason we have the account that, that how, of how Peter denied Jesus was because Peter told Mark and Mark wrote it down. So if you're trying to make up a religion, if you're trying to stick it to the man, if you're trying to create a legend so you can create a ruckus in totalitarian Rome, this isn't how you go about it because it's totally counterproductive showcasing this kind of weakness. There's no self-respecting Greek or Roman would ever abandon millennia of philosophy and, and follow the claims of these deeply flawed men. Nobody would do it. So when people just willy-nilly broad-brush the Gospels and say, well, they can't be reliable, it's fabricated stories to start a movie, just from historical literary criticism, this would never work. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it this way. Think about it this way. Um, <laughs> you're trying to get a, a, a Greco-Roman to believe this text that I'm about to read, uh, uh, I'm about to, read to you. And uh, so here's Mark taking things down, and Mark's like, are you sure I want to say it was a little girl at the fire? that you cursed out when you were afraid of Jesus? Yeah, write it down. That's how it happened. But, I mean, if we really want the Romans to get behind this, do we want to say there was like 10 guys with swords and they threatened to slit your throat? And so, like, in a moment of panic, you said, I don't know the man! Like, could we? that would get a lot more traction. No, it was a little girl, right? Okay, we're going to go with that. Little servant girl? Little servant girl. Okay, little servant girl came to Peter. Understand? That's how it reads. And when you are going to take a picture of yourself, you take the best version. You add filters. You do all kinds of things. Right? When it's Christmas photo time, if, if mom looks good, it doesn't matter what the rest of you look like. That thing's going out. <laughs> I narrowly missed a really bad photo this year going out for Christmas because we took a second one. I mean, it was this close. I was taking it with a selfie stick and the kids were laughing at me like, look at dad, it looks like he's posing for a Justice League poster because of the, I was trying to get, not get the selfie stick. And, but Susan looked great. I was like, this thing's going out. <laughs> when you are taking a picture of yourself, you take the best possible version. But the, the Gospels do not put filters on the disciples. The Gospels are gritty and raw. The Gospels are hashtag no filter. And the reason for this is because this message that is unpacked in the gospel about Jesus Christ, the reason why thousands and thousands of men and women and children abandoned their worldviews overnight was because they saw something. Because this account is true. 
Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the river. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a man came, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is God's word. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it is the central life-changing event in human history, and therefore it's the central life-organizing event uh, for us. And the word of God and the spirit of God, they open the eyes of our understanding so we can see the significance of the Son of God. And that insight is life-changing because we understand ourselves And we understand our life in relation to understanding God. And so Mark's gospel is almost symmetrical. You can almost divide it in half. The first eight chapters speak to the identity of Jesus. And the last eight chapters speak to the purpose of Jesus. His identity being that he's the king. And his purpose being his cross. And so in verse 1, Mark gets right to the point. Which I really appreciate. Just a bottom line guy. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, when you look at it. He introduces Jesus using a Greek word as the Christos. For those of you exploring Christian faith, Christ is not Jesus' last name. So like, hi, my name is Jesus Christ, and this is my brother James Christ. No. Christ is a Greek word which means, uh, Greek word Christos, which means um, anointed royal. And then he goes on to say that he's the son of God. So in the very first sentence of Mark, Mark's like, listen. He's an anointed royal and he's divine. He is God and he is man. And right out of the gate, we get this massive announcement of his divinity. And so Mark takes everybody's understanding of the Messiah way further than it ever went before. The first verse is this audacious claim that the longings and the visions and the prophecies of all of Israel about this king who would come and rescue his people, it extends far beyond being national and political implications, which is what everybody thought the Messiah was up to far beyond national and political. This king is divine, and the implications are global and eternal. And so after announcing who Jesus is in a way that's more radical than anybody would ever understand, he goes on and he describes Jesus' baptism in a way that's more jarring than anybody would ever expect. The baptism was a repentance back to God, and everybody who was wanting to convert to Judaism would go and be baptized. Baptism is all through the Old Testament as well, by the way, Um, because it's ceremonial cleansing. 
There were ceremonial washings and ceremonial pourings and ceremonial sprinklings. And it's just constant ceremonial cleansing you can find all throughout biblical history. So what John was doing was he was saying, listen, you've got to turn and go back to God. So there were, the children of God were being baptized as a repentance to go back to God. There were, there were uh, those who were not of, uh, of uh, Jewish descent who were being baptized to convert to Judaism who were turning to God. And then Jesus inexplicably participates in this movement of repentance, even though he requires no repentance. So why did he do this, and what, what does this mean? Well, Jesus shows us who he is through baptism. Jesus shows us what he's come to do through baptism. And so when you read verses 9 through 11, and you look at the baptism, you see that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. <clears throat> now today, the Holy Spirit, thinking of the Holy Spirit as a dove is common. Any of you who grew up in the, and remember the 90s and touched by an angel, it's like everybody knows the Holy Spirit appears as a dove. For us, it's the most common thing. But you see, at the time when Mark wrote this, the, the scriptures that they had was all of the Old Testament. And so now the original audience is hearing that the Spirit descends as a dove, which is incredible because when they had to think through the scriptures, where have I, see, if I ask a, a modern person, hey, where do you think of the Holy Spirit as a dove? That everybody, even if they're not Christians, will be like, oh, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit comes as a dove. But you know what they had to think about? The first thing that would have popped into their mind was creation. Genesis chapter 1. Because in the Hebrew language, to hover is to flutter. And so in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth, and the earth was without form and without void, and the, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So they would have thought of Genesis 1, creation. At creation, the Spirit flutters over the waters in the Hebrew. And a lot of rabbi, when they would, when they would translate and teach that, they would say the Spirit of God fluttered over the stormy waters like a dove. And now we've got an image of the Holy Spirit fluttering over the waters as the dove. Again, and so there's this radical picture that's being painted, this huge parallel that's being painted. Three parties at creation, three parties at, back to, at baptism. At creation, you have God's voice, you have God's spirit fluttering over the waters, and you have God's word through which he creates. And then at baptism, you have God's voice, you have God's spirit fluttering over the waters of baptism, and then you've got son, you've got God's son, who is God's word incarnate, through which he recreates. So immediately right here in the first few verses of Mark, you get this image of who Jesus is. This radical picture of the king of creation, who is also the king of recreation. Who's come again to do something powerful and new. And it's tremendous. And so, uh, in Jesus' baptism, you also see God the Father enveloping him in words of love, and God the Spirit indwelling him with power. You see the Trinity here. The word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, but the, uh, the reality of the Trinity is everywhere in the Bible. And so here we see the Father loving the Son, and the Spirit loving the Son, and the Son loving the Father, and the Spirit, and the Father loving... It's, it's a dynamic motion, is what we want to see. Three gods who are, are equal in their substance, but yet one God, and they're loving each other. The reason why this is important, maybe I'll say it this way, is, it's, is we understand our God as being an eternal, loving exchange. Before he created anything, he, there was already an eternal, loving exchange. Great writer and uh, apologist C.S. Lewis wrote about it this way. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, 
but a dynamic activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will, not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. That within God himself, there's this constant dance of love. And so Jesus' baptism gives us a picture of that dynamic love in the Trinity, each person of the Godhead enveloping one another. I'll tell you why this is so important. Because what it teaches us is that God was infinitely, profoundly loving, full of joy and contentment, and he was complete within himself. He didn't need anything. So if God didn't need love, if God didn't need joy, if God didn't need happiness, if God didn't need contentment because he already had it, then what did he create us for? Not to get love from us, to give love to us. Not to get joy from us, to give joy to us. Not to get happiness from us, to give happiness to us. God, the God of creation, what he intended from the beginning, as Augustine put it, was to take everything that was God and graciously give it to everything that was not God. Our God is not needy. The God of Christianity is not needy. He wasn't like floating around in a ethereal space. You know, it's kind of boring out here. I need some, I need some little minions to worship me. He's not needy. He was fine. And the picture of the baptism illustrates this tremendous love and joy that was, is within God himself. And the reason why this is so important for us is because this is how we're introduced to Jesus. And notice that right after... If you think back to creation, right after God creates everything, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit present over the waters, what's the next thing that happens? Adam gets tempted. What happens here in Mark? The Father and the Son and the Spirit are over the baptism waters. Jesus gets tempted. The tremendous parallel that we see about who Jesus is, why he has come, and what he has come to do. Jesus is the second Adam. And so when you read verses 12 to 13, as we were going through there, it says Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. And Mark put some interesting words there. He says he was with the wild animals. Because at the time Mark wrote this, guess who was getting thrown to the wild animals? The Christians in the Colosseums. And so the wilderness isn't like this little short detour into tough times in your life. Wilderness all throughout the scripture is like, this is a time of testing of trust and allegiance. See, in the garden, Adam was tempted. His trust and his allegiance was tested. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted. His trust and allegiance was tempted. In the Colosseums at Rome, at the time when Mark wrote this, the Christians were being tempted. Their trust and their allegiance was tested. Adam failed. Christians fail. You and I fail. Jesus did not fail. And so we get this incredible picture here from the beginning. The other interesting note is that this whole baptism, this is all happening at the River Jordan. And Jordan is where a man named Joshua, God used Joshua to bring, bring his people into freedom. Right? Moses couldn't do it, Joshua had to do it. Moses brought the law, but salvation doesn't come through the law. Salvation can't come through keeping God's law because nobody can keep God's law. God, Moses didn't even keep God's law. Moses was given God's law. He couldn't keep God's law. So God said, you have not kept my law. You have not kept my command. I said, speak to the rock, but instead you struck it in anger. That doesn't reflect my nature at all. So you're going to die in the wilderness, Moses. So Moses dies in the wilderness, and then Joshua has to take them into freedom. 
Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, which could be translated in the English Joshua. So of all of the names in the Old Testament that Jesus could take, he could have been named Adam or Samuel or David or Solomon. Of all the names, what name does Jesus take? Yeshua, Joshua. Why? Because he's the greater Joshua who would bring us into freedom, bring us into deliverance. Joshua's deliverance was temporary. Jesus' deliverance is eternal. So it takes place at the very point of this deliverance, of this freedom. Here comes Jesus to do it perfectly as the greater Joshua. To do it perfectly, the one who would bring freedom, deliverance, because salvation could not come through the law. So this is all happening here. It's on display for us to marvel at, uh, at his, at his uh, baptism. So what God wanted in the beginning, of course, with Adam and Eve and all of humanity, was for us to enjoy life like God enjoyed life. How did God enjoy life? He wasn't the singularity focused on himself. God is triune and his love was outward facing. His love was constantly giving. What was God's intent for Adam and Eve and for all of humanity that we would enjoy life like God enjoys life with outward facing love and life and joy and generosity? But what happened was, of course, When God said to Adam, enjoy everything, don't touch the tree. Because by not touching the tree, that's the way you don't center everything on yourself. That's the way by recognizing, oh, you know what? There is a God and I will glory in him and I will revolve. I will orbit around him as he within himself is orbiting around himself. I'll orbit around him. I won't touch the tree. I'll glory in you. But instead, our first parents did a cost-benefit analysis. And instead of choosing a life that was dynamic, they chose a life that was static. No, 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 no. I'm not going to orbit around you. The temptation from the devil was, you don't need to orbit around God. You stay stationary and you let God orbit around you. You don't live a life of dynamic love that's outward facing and giving and generous. You stop and you make everybody be loving and and you make everybody orbit around you. So from the beginning, our first parents and all of humanity since, we have been born into this state that is not dynamic like what you see in the Trinity, but it's static. We've left the dance, to use C.S. Lewis's terminology. And the king has come to rectify that problem. This is why, for those of you who have small children, you have to teach the child that the world does not orbit around them because our natural inclination is precisely to live that way. And some of you go to work with people who are still learning that, okay? And some of us are those people that are still learning that. And we have moments each week where we are still learning that. And so, this is uh, this moment where we see um, that... The dynamic life of God, the dynamic love of God is a window into the life that we were actually intended for. Because sin is contrary to the nature of God. It doesn't make us dynamic, it makes us static. It doesn't curve us outward and upward, it curves us inward. And so Adam's temptation and Jesus' temptation was the same. Adam was tempted, hey, don't glory in God, live independent of God. What were the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness? Don't trust God. Don't glory in God. Live independent of God. It was exactly the, the same. And when, when I say to glory in something, what I mean is you love it for it. You love it for what it is. You don't love it because it's going to give you, it's going to benefit you. See, Adam did the cost-benefit analysis. And he's like, no, I think it would be better to be God, actually. But if you're glorying in something, you just love it for what it is. I'll say it this way. If the only reason you pull out a canvas and do a painting, or you take up an instrument for six months or you listen to music, or you go and you watch a film, is because you need an art credit so you can graduate? You don't love art. 
You don't love art. You don't glory in art. You're using art. It's a means to an end. I need a credit so I can do this, so I'll paint the paint. But you see, people who glory in art, people who love art, they paint when it has no benefit to them. They play the music when there's no benefit to them. They watch the film, they write the film, they write the story, they do the art, they write the poetry, not because there's ROI involved. They're just glorying in the art. And so what God was desiring in the beginning was that Adam would glory in him, and he did not. So what Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he does what the first Adam failed at by glorying in God. And there's a reason, of course, that he did this, and that's that we could be brought back into what we lost and be brought back into the glory of God so that we too could glory God, glory in God. And because when you, uh, when you consider people who are self-absorbed or the moments when you and I get self-absorbed, we stay stationary and we want everybody to revolve around us. And that is why every relationship in human history breaks down. That is at the, that sin of pride and being God and being static and making everything revolve around us is the root cause under all oppression, injustice, evil, and tragedy in the world. Because it is, it is not saying, I will, I will love you for your benefit at my expense because I love you and glory in you. It's I'm stationary and you will bend to me. And that's underneath the core of every relational breakdown. And so we find this that Adam disobeyed by a tree. And of course, Jesus, Christ the King, came to obey on a tree. Adam's disobedience brought death. Christ's obedience brings life. Adam blamed his bride. Christ died for his. These radical parallels that are given to us right in the beginning of Mark, of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And the very first time that Mark records Jesus' voice, it's in verse 14. The very first time Jesus opens his mouth and speaks, what does he say? Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. There is a massive difference between calling for repentance and calling for religious performance. Because you know what? Before Jesus showed up, a whole lot of religious leaders were, 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 were calling for repentance, but it wasn't the repentance Jesus was, call, was talking about. A whole lot of religious leaders were calling for increased religious performance. What, what good things did Jesus have to say to the religious leaders of his day? None. I mean, he barely squeaks out this thing in this one point in Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus goes, Okay, you're, you're, you're tithing your, you know, your seeds and you're dividing up all your mustard into giving 10% to the temple. So I guess that's good that you're tithing. But the widows and the orphans, guys. I mean, it's like it's not even really a compliment. What did Jesus have to say? Nothing. Because why? There's a radical difference between repentance and religious activity. It's a chasm. It's like the Grand Canyon chasm. I don't know if any of you have been able to had the opportunity to be at the Grand Canyon. If you've, if you've ever uh, been able to look at it in real life, it's staggering. Susan and I were looking at it, and we were staring at it, and it was so vast. We were like, is this real? It was so vast, there were moments where our eyes couldn't focus on the vastness. It was like, it's, it's like a painting. God's grace is so vast. It's like, can this be true? Jesus coming and saying, repent and believe the gospel, he's introducing something. He's not saying, you know, the Pharisees haven't ramped it up enough, so I'm going to ramp up the religious, uh, you know, uh, repentance and activity. That's not what's going on here. 
Repentance means to reverse course. What could possibly be powerful enough to make the human heart reverse course? The word gospel in the Greek is evangelion. It comes from two words, angelos, which means to announce news, and you, which means joy. And so you need to know that the New Testament writers didn't invent this word gospel. The word gospel existed in the ancient culture. It meant historic, life-changing news. There's ancient inscriptions that say the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Because they were saying, we're announcing the birth of a new emperor. This is changing history. That's what gospel meant. Jesus comes and says, repent and believe this life-changing, game-changing, status-changing news that I am about to give you. The gospel is an event that changes everything. It changes your status forever. It's not something that you can do. It is something that is done for you. Every world faith operates on advice. Every system of non-faith operates on advice. Gospel is not good advice. Jesus did not come to give good advice. He came to give good news. And the reason why this is so important is because the repentance Jesus is calling for is to turn their gaze upward. Religions, religious performance turns your gaze inward. Jesus is calling to a repentance that's going to actually usher his people into rest. Religious performance offers you no rest. The repentance Jesus is talking about will reform you by God's grace and power. The religious performance of the Pharisees had a facade of godliness and no reforming power. And so the scriptures do teach that the same grace that rescues you through believing leads to renewal in your behaving. But we don't want to confuse what the gospel is with with what the gospel does. Because Jesus did not come and say, repent and behave. That's how most people understand Christianity. Repent and behave. Jesus came and said, repent and believe. Not that that doesn't have a profound impact on our behaving, which it sure does, but that's not the message. He said, repent and believe. Here's why it's so important. If somebody you admire, who is truly successful in a field that is interesting to you or uh, something that's interesting to you, if, if they give you advice, how do you feel? How do you feel when you're given advice? Good advice, really good advice. You might feel inspired, but you're not going to feel like a burden's been lifted off you. Because even the best possible advice, given in the best possible way, does not alleviate work and burdens. The best possible advice, given in the best possible way, puts burdens and puts work on you. Oh, hey, it's so great to have lunch with you. I can't believe it. You're my hero. You're the greatest hockey player in the entire NHL. You know, I, I would love to. Boy, do you have any advice? Yeah, I do. All you got to do is work out like a beast and wake up every morning at 4 a.m. and take 10,000 slap shots a day, want it more than everybody, be better than everybody, realize you got to beat out everybody. You're still probably not going to make it statistically because you were born in the wrong month. And if you look at history and you read, you know, uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, if you're not born in March, you're probably not making the NHL. It's just a statistical reality. You should look at that because you get better coaching because you're a little older when the other kids aren't there. Anyway, so that's all he goes. So there you go. That's advice. That's how I got to the NHL. You can do it too. Just believe it, want it, do it. Great advice. No burdens have been lifted off. You got to walk away from that conversation like, okay, I just met my hero. Let's do this. Wow, it's so great to have coffee with you. I can't believe it. You're the greatest running back in the NFL. I'm playing high school football. Can you help me? Yeah, I have got great advice for you. All you got to do is have the instincts of a ninja. And then you got to have the reflexes of a fighter pilot. You got to be able to run the 40 in under five seconds and bench press a Honda Civic. And you're probably going to be okay. Wow, thank you for that advice. And you know most people approach Christianity like this. Oh, Jesus, 
He's a good dude. Do you have any advice? Yeah, I do. All you have to do is have a pure heart 24 hours a day. A pure mind. Don't think any evil of your neighbor. Don't walk towards people with judgment. Don't walk with a plank in your eye like you've somehow... No, you've got to love people 24-7. Live to the glory of God 24-7. Don't trust in your finances, the health of your body, your relationships, your family, your marriage. You've got to trust in God. Put all of your hope in Him. And all you have to do is just do all of that perfectly, perpetually, personally, 24-7. And you can be just like me. I've got a WWJD bracelet. Is that a good start? Good news. Repent and believe the good news. I've come to do something. He says, in the, this good news is the, is the kingdom of God. What does that even mean? He says that the kingdom of God has come. It's, it's fulfilled. Repent and believe the good news. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where the king rules. And when you go back to creation, which is with the big parallel in Mark chapter 1, that's why I'm hammering it. See the, the parallel between creation and recreation? The God present at creation and the king who's come for recreation? The temptation failure of Adam and the temptation overcome by the second Adam? You see, the kingdom in the, kingdom in, in the beginning was that we were supposed to enjoy life that was whole. Spiritually, physically, psychologically, socially whole. The world we wish we had but we don't have. The life that we wish we had but we, it's out of our grasp. Holistic. I mean whole, perfectly whole in every way. That's, the, that's what was created. That was the kingdom when God was king. We rejected God as king in favor of being king. We stopped orbiting around the love of God and we started orbit, orbiting around the love of self. So sin took us out of God's favor, but the king has come to bring us back into God's favor. And now by grace we can call him father. And so that's why the first time that Mark records Jesus opening his mouth, he's announcing that the king has come and invaded our space with the startling news that everything is actually his space. And that by his grace, everything that is wrong will be made right. Everything sorrowful will one day be eradicated and everything beautiful will be restored. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the belief that's powerful enough to transform behavior. That's why Christian faith is not founded in behavior. It is the radicality of that belief and letting the, the good news of that gospel go deep down into our hearts that actually transforms our day-to-day and how we relate to life, our neighbors, this city, your vocation, your recreation, the eyes with which you see, the constant renewal of your mind and your heart. The glorious renewal is what the gospel does, but this believing, marveling at this believing is what the gospel is, and this is what propels everything else. All of the glorious renewal for our lives to be a blessing in this city, it is downstream from marveling at this, belief, at this gospel and what Jesus said we are to come and believe. This historical Jesus being Christ the King, it means that the status quo has been ruptured forever. It means that we can't think of history as a closed system of natural causes with infinite regression to nothing forever. It means we can't think of human systems and traditions and authorities as inevitable or permanent or absolute. And you look at your newsfeed and somebody say amen. Okay, because we can't think of these things as absolute because the true king has come. And when Jesus opens his mouth and these Words put God's agenda on parade. God's agenda on parade that the king over all creation has come to offer grace. 
That the love, the joy, the utter fulfillment that you see in the Trinitarian God, the love, the joy, the utter fulfillment that you see that God was enjoying from all of eternity, he offers to you. And now by grace, he redeems you. And by grace, he adopts you. So that when God looks on you, church, he says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Amen.